morning. I'd like you to join me in James chapter 1. It's our fourth message in verses 2 to 12. We've entitled it, Happy Trials to You. You know, some passages, you have to look very careful, carefully to try to discover the theme. Uh, verses 2 to 12, it's real obvious what the theme is. In fact, this passage is, has two bookends, and they're really matching bookends. If you look at verses 2 and 3, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then notice what he says in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. This passage begins and ends with the same words. The word trial is in both the beginning and end of this passage. In verse 3, the word testing, and in verse 12, the word approved is the same Greek word, dokimos, to be tested for the sake of approval. The word endurance in verse 3, and the word perseveres in verse 12, is from the same root word that means to remain under. And joy, in verse 2, is synonymous with the word blessed, in verse 12, which is a word that means happy. And so the message is clear. Trials have a purpose. God is testing you for the purpose of approving you. And the key is perseverance, to stay under that trial. And the response is joy. Now there is a word in verse 12 that doesn't appear at the beginning of this passage. And I want to point it out because I don't want us to miss it today. And that is the word love. If you notice the end of verse 12, he says, the Lord has promised this crown to those who love him. James has often been accused of being all about works. Well, here we see James saying, what you do isn't really about what you do. It's about who you love. And I think this really is a phrase that we could use as sort of the outline of this book. Because James is really telling us those who love Jesus in chapter 1 will pass the test of trials. And those who love Jesus will handle temptations in their life. And those that love Jesus will not just hear the Word and keep it up in their brain. They will live out and do the Word of God. They will have compassion for widows and orphans. Those who love Jesus in chapter 2 are not prejudiced. They're going to love the people that Jesus loves. Those who love Jesus in chapter 3 are going to manage their tongue. Those who love Jesus in chapter 4 are not going to make plans and leave Jesus out. And those who love Jesus in chapter 5 are not going to trust in riches. They're going to trust in Jesus. You know what that tells us? There is a direct correlation between how practical your faith is and how much you love Jesus. If you truly love Jesus, 
your faith is going to have feet. It's going to be evident in every practical area of your life. And the first way we display our love for Jesus is as practical as it gets. That is handling trials. Now James tells us in verse 2 that trials are not optional. They're not a maybe. They're they're not an if in your life. In fact, if you look at verse 2, he says at the end, when you fall into various trials. Trials are going to happen in your life. In Job 5, 7, it says, man is born into trouble as sparks fly upward. You build a fire, guess what you're going to get? Sparks. If you have a life, guess what you're going to get? Trouble. Job said something in Job 14.1 that you won't find on a Hallmark card. He said, man who is born of woman, I think that includes all of us, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Trouble is inevitable. When I was first saved, I found a little book that said the promises of Jesus. It's kind of a cool little booklet. But there's a promise that Jesus made that I'm sure wasn't in that booklet. Because in John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus made this promise. In this world, you shall have tribulation. Jesus promised trouble. Jesus had trouble. Isaiah 53 tells us he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew grief very well. Paul had plenty of troubles. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted in every way. You know, when we think about our lives, some of the best times we have in life are because of marriage. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, in a passage where Peter is talking about marriage, he talks about the two people in marriage, the husband and wife, are joint heirs of the grace of life. And some people think that phrase, the grace of life, is a reference to marriage. It's kind of like the icing on the cake. It's the whipped cream on life. From a human standpoint, our greatest happiness comes through marriage, that completion, that fulfillment, that intimacy, that love that happens in marriage. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 28, Paul says, if you get married, you're going to have more trouble. Can I get an amen? If you get married... Now, not only do you have trouble, you get your wife's trouble. And then you get your kids' trouble. And then you get your grandkids' trouble. Family is wonderful. It's where we get our greatest joys from a human standpoint. But guess what? It's where we experience the greatest trials and the greatest pain because we share the pain. We share the loss. We share the death that happens in our family. And so James says, trials are not an if, they're a win. But what James does is he gives us a whole new perspective on troubles. He tells us that troubles are not a negative to be avoided in your life. 
Troubles are a positive to be welcomed. Troubles have a purpose in your life. They are God's refining fire that purifies your faith like gold. They are God's weight room, God's gym, where he is shaping you into the character of Christ. You see, from your vantage point, you go through life with your plan in mind. You may have an agenda written down in in a piece of paper in your pocket. This is my plan for the day. When that trial comes into your life unexpectedly, you view it as an annoying interruption to your plan. But from God's perspective, that same trial is the highlight of your day. Because there is more of eternal consequence taking place in that trial than probably anything else you're doing in your day. One of the tests of a true diamond is the water test. If you hand me a a genuine diamond and an imitation diamond, I probably can't tell the difference. They both shine. But I'm told if you take them and you put them under water, that the true diamond still sparkles and the imitation diamond is extinguished by the water. In fact, it's nondescript. You can... You can't even make it out under the water. Now, I say that for two reasons. Ladies, if he takes you to a nice restaurant and hands you a diamond, ask for a glass of water. Make sure he's for real. But secondly, this is a great illustration of genuine faith. Because a person's faith may shine on the surface, may sound really good on the surface, but when it goes under the waters of adversity, under the waters of sorrow, if it is extinguished, guess what? It's imitation faith. Genuine faith will shine just as brightly under the waters of adversity as it does on the surface. You say, well, Dan, how do we shine under troubled waters? How do we welcome a trial as a tool in the hand of God? We have picked out five ingredients. A simple recipe here has to do with your attitude, your mind, your will, your heart, and your spirit. Let's walk through them. Number one is a joyful attitude. He says in verse 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, let's say you go out of here today and you run into a trial. Let's say you go out and there's a dent in the door of your brand-new truck. Or as somebody did to my car recently, they take their key and they key the side of your car. Or let's say you go home this afternoon and you've got that project to do and you take your hammer and bang your thumb with the hammer. You see, if... I see that as an accident. Then I will yell, scream, cuss, blame the gods of chance. But if I see it as a purposeful part of God's plan, if I see that trial as a tool in the hand of God, if I see it as the chisel he's using 
to take that little rough edge off and make the facet of the diamond more beautiful, what am I going to do? I'm going to consider it all joy. You see, perspective is everything. Now notice the attitude again. He doesn't say, I want you to consider it a little joy. I want to see a hint of joy. He doesn't say, say, be kind of, sort of joyful. He says, consider it what? All joy. That is pure joy, unmixed joy, not half and half, complete, comprehensive, sheer joy when you encounter trials. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean you walk around with a silly Viagra commercial grin on your face all the time. But there is a joy in your life that circumstances cannot shake. Jesus wept. It's okay to weep joyfully. But there is a foundation of joy in your life that nothing that happens can disturb. Paul and Silas are in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. They're beaten with rods. They're imprisoned in the inner prison, which would be maximum security. Their feet are placed in wooden stocks. I'm sure that was not their plan for the day. How did they react? They were singing to the Lord. And as a result of that trial, the jailer came to faith in Christ and a church was established in the city of Philippi. Paul later writes from prison to that same church. Now he's in prison in Rome. He's got the physical trial. He's on death row. Nero's probably going to put him to death. He's got the physical trial, but he's also got an emotional trial because the other preachers going around, or some of them are saying, Paul's in prison because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He messed up in his ministry, and that's why God's got him in prison. And they were seeking to cause him distress. They were operating out of envy. They were operating out of selfishness. And how does Paul respond? Philippians 1.18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Ingredient number one is a joyful attitude. Ingredient number two is an understanding mind. Notice verse three. It says, knowing, mark that word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You will never be able to rejoice in trials until you understand that God has a purpose in that trial. Until you know that God is producing something valuable. And that's why in verse 2, James says, consider it all joy. Can I state the obvious? A trial never feels like joy. You have to consider it joy. And that word consider is an accounting term. It means to count it or to calculate it. When we have trials in our life, we add them up with our worldly calculator Our worldly calculator puts greater value on our comfort, our pleasure, our possessions. When we add up trials on our worldly calculator, guess what we come up with? We say, we're in the red. 
I'm losing because I've got all these problems in my life. But you see, when you factor in what God is doing in your life, when you understand what Job understood in Job 23.10 when he said, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When you factor in what God is doing, then your response is, this is gain. This is victory. That's why in verse 12 he says, you get a crown. And that crown is not a royal crown, it's the victor's crown. It's the crown given at the Olympics for the winner of the event. The word consider or count is the same word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3. And in that great passage, he lists all his accomplishments, all the great things he did for God before he was a believer. And then he says this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted or calculated as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, here's all my list of accomplishments. When I used to add them up, they added up to pride. But in contrast to knowing Jesus, I now look at the same list and I count it as rubbish. And that word is literally horse manure. Everything I did that was good, trying to gain acceptance with God, I now view as rubbish, something I throw away in view of knowing Christ. You see, James is using that same word, and he's saying, you know, when you list all your trials and you add them up, guess what? They add up to frustration. But when you contrast what God is doing and you say, God is using this trial to make me more like Jesus, then that list of trials that used to add up to frustration now adds up to what? Joy. See, in contrast to knowing Jesus, my good deeds are trash and my difficult times are trivial. I embrace them. I rejoice in them because that's my only goal. And then the third ingredient is a surrendered will. Notice the little word in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. Every time a trial comes into your life, you have a choice. You can complain and resist, or you can rejoice and embrace what God is doing. You can resist what God is doing, or you can cooperate with God by letting that trial have its effect in your life. I call this a surrendered will because you know what God's major purpose is in most of our lives? It's to break our will. It's to break our will. When you think about your will, your will is all about your health, your wealth, your comfort, your kingdom, your glory. What is God's will about? It's about his kingdom. It's about his glory. And so his priority for you and me is our character 
and our witness. And what I see in this little word, let, is that trials don't automatically make you like Jesus. Two people can go through the exact same trial. One person ends up bitter. The other person ends up better. You've heard that saying, the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. And so the question is, when those trials come into your life, are you going to become stubborn and hard and bitter? Or are you going to surrender and be soft and pliable in the hand of God? Let me show you a psalm. Go back to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, it's only three verses long, and we'll only look at two. Psalm 131, David says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I'm a simple man, he says. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. David says, I'm like a weaned child. Now, when does a child become weaned? I don't know. Somewhere one to two years old? I'm like that weaned child. I don't need all the answers. I'm just like that little child who climbs up into the lap of his mother and just rests with his mother. When Lindsay was about one, I took her to get an immunization shot, and I really didn't know what I was signing up for. I just said, I'll, I'll take her to the doctor. And I got to the doctor, and you hand the doctor, you know, go back with her and hand your little one-year-old to the nurses and they hold on to her on the table and they take out this huge needle and they stick it in her leg. And I'm right there next to her. And as soon as they stuck that needle in her leg, she screamed like bloody murder and she turned around and she looked at me. And I could read her mind. Why are you letting them hurt me? And at that point, I explained all about immunization to her. <laughs> no, at that moment, I got a little tear in my eye because there was nothing I could do. But you know what? As soon as they let go of her, you know what she wanted? She wanted to be in my arms being held, going. <laughs> what was she saying? I know you love me. Even though I don't understand why you let them hurt me, I know you love me, and I trust you. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I'll tell you this. He doesn't always give you all the answers. He doesn't always explain immunization to you. And if he did, you wouldn't understand it. But we need to have that surrendered will that says, God, even though this hurts, I know you've got a higher purpose in what's going on, and I'm going to climb up into your lap, 
like a weaned child, and I'm going to rest in you. Fourth ingredient is a believing heart. He tells us in verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Now again, God's not going to give you all the answers, but he will give you, we called wisdom, God's perspective. He'll give you a new perspective on what you're going through. Ask God. Those of you who have kids know there's two ways to ask why. You can ask defiantly, why? Or you can ask submissively, when you really want to know why. You can ask as a doubter when you approach God. You can say, there can't be any good reason for this to happen in my life. That's doubting. Or you can ask believing, God, I know you have a reason. Would you show me what it is? And if I can't see it, help me to trust you with it anyway. A believing heart. And then final ingredient is a humble spirit. In verses 9 to 11, James gives us an illustration of wisdom. Notice what he says. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, good Bible teachers differ on what this illustration means, but let me just tell you what I think it means. I think James is contrasting a believer with a difficult life to an unbeliever with a comfortable life. Let me give you some reasons why I take it that way. Number one, the poor man in verse 9 is referred to as a brother. The rich man in verse 10 is not called a brother. He is simply called the rich man. Secondly, it doesn't simply say in verses 10 and 11 that this rich man's riches will pass away. It says the rich man will pass away. He will fade away, which is unusual language if he's speaking about a believer. And then thirdly, in this book of James, James always refers to the rich as unbelievers. And I won't show you all the passages, but let me show you one. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 6. He says at the end of that verse, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And in chapter 5, he, he gives six verses of a woe against the riches that you fattened yourself in a day of slaughter. Now, why does he refer to the rich as unbelievers? Well, because at this point in time when James wrote, there were no rich people in the church. See, he's writing, 
verse 1 tells us he's writing to the believers that are scattered abroad. They had lived in Jerusalem. When they were in Jerusalem, some of them were rich. They had land and houses. Now they're scattered abroad. Guess what? They have a common denominator, poverty. They have left everything in Jerusalem, and now they're scattered throughout the region, and they're all living with humble circumstances. And I'm sure in that setting, they're doing what we often do when things go wrong in our life. We look at ourselves and say, why am I going through all these difficulties And this guy over here that doesn't even know the Lord seems to be blessed, seems to be successful, seems to be living very comfortably. And James says, let me give you a little heavenly perspective, a little wisdom. Verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. He has humble circumstances in the eyes of the Lord. He has gone down. But guess what? From God's perspective, he has a high position. Why? Because if in the course of those trials he is coming to know Jesus more and coming to become more like Jesus, then he is highly exalted in the eyes of God. And then in contrast, notice verse 10 again. He says, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. You see, what the rich man is glorying in, i.e. his riches, are really his humiliation because his glory is as temporal as the flower of the field. How many of you guys got your wives flowers for Valentine's Day? Come on, you can do better than that. That's pathetic. I was going to ask you how they're doing. You, know, you buy flowers. My, my grandson, uh, Bryden, was here last week, and he got one of the little carnations out in the lobby, and, and uh, he was running around the lobby with it, and he broke the stem, and he goes, Papa, I killed it. <laughs> and I said, it was already dead. You know, it's already been killed. It just didn't know it yet. You know, it's, it's a beautiful flower. They cut the flowers and you put them in water and they maintain for a while and then, then they fade away. If you're going to look at life in terms of material things and material blessings and comfort, you're going to be confused on what's going on because you can't evaluate people that way. If you evaluate life that way, then you will conclude that Donald Trump is winning and Bill Gates, and Ted Turner. But when we get God's wisdom and we get the big picture from God, we find that the real winner is the brother who is experiencing humble circumstances. He is under trials, but he's glorifying God in the midst of them. He's knowing God better as a result of having gone through that. And he is growing day by day. You see, the real winner is Job who lost everything and found God in a new way. Wisdom enables you to understand that negative circumstances can have positive results. Let me show you another passage. This is a great passage. Jeremiah 48. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. It's really exciting. Jeremiah 48.
Jeremiah 48 is a whole chapter that proclaims judgment on Moab. Moab was Israel's neighbor to the east. Moab was Lot's son. So this is a relative and a neighbor of Israel. Jeremiah 48, notice what God says in verse 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. When Israel got taken to Babylon, they went right past Moab. God says Moab has been at ease. When they came by on their way into captivity in Babylon, Moab was sitting on his porch in his rocking chair, sipping lemonade. His life was at ease. Israel went by and thought, why is he resting and we're in captivity? Why is he so comfortable and we, the people of God, are suffering? And then God puts things in perspective. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed like, a, like wine on its dregs. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. Let me tell you what he's talking about here. He's talking about winemaking. When they made wine, they would take the grapes and smash the grapes and get, get the, the, the grape juice and they would put it into um, a wine vessel, a wine skin, and they would let it sit for a while. And then after it set for a while in age, they would take that wineskin and they would pour it into another wineskin. But what was left behind was the dregs, the sediment, the skin of the grape left behind. And then they would repeat the process. They would leave it in another wineskin for a while. And then they would pour it into a third wineskin and later into a fourth and a fifth. And every time, a little sediment got left behind kept pouring the wine until finally the wine was sweet. And then the winemaker would go back to those wineskins and he would take the sediment out. And you know what he made out of sediment? Vinegar. God is saying, Moab has been at ease. He never got poured from wineskin to wineskin to wineskin, so guess what? He's still got all his vinegar in him. You have been poured from wineskin to wineskin to wineskin. What is God doing? He's making you sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. He's making you more and more useful. At the end of this passage, God says because of that, Moab has the same old taste and he has the same old smell. He's still full of vinegar. I hope you would conclude that you would rather be poured from wineskin to wineskin to wineskin in the process of God so that the old bitter sediment is removed and you gain the aroma and the flavor of Jesus Christ. You know, I will never see that if I simply look at life from a human perspective. I have to see it from God's perspective, and that's wisdom. God's wisdom helps me understand that God uses hard times sometimes to make me soft. 
that God uses bitter times to make me sweet, that God uses temporal sadness to bring me eternal joy. And God's, God has to disturb my ease in order to pour me and pour me and pour me to get the vinegar out. And when I see it from his perspective, I can rejoice in what he's doing in my life. And then if you come back to James 1, we'll conclude with verse 12, which we read earlier. Because he gives us the end view here. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. In the introduction to this book, we saw that James uses Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as his springboard for writing James. What's in the Sermon on the Mount? Beatitudes. And here James gives a beatitude of his own. Blessed is the man, and that word blessed means happy. Blessed is the man who stays under the trials, who perseveres under the trials. You see, true happiness doesn't come from avoiding trials. True happiness comes from going through those trials. Because James says, endurance leads to approval, which leads to a crown. And this is consistent. This is always the way God operates. You can be certain. In God's plan, it was true of Jesus, it's true of you. The cross always comes first, and then the crown. Suffering always comes first, and then glory. And so if you need some incentive in this passage, he tells us, we can rejoice when we fall into trials because, verse 4, there is a present product. It is endurance and maturity and completion in Christ. We're becoming more like him. And then in verse 12, there is a future product, and that is the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Years ago, I heard Howard Hendricks telling about a lesson he learned in playing checkers. He was just a little boy, and he just learned how to play checkers, and, and an old man asked him if he could play him in checkers, and so they sat down to play checkers, and... and uh, not very far into the game, the, the man moved his red checker right in front of Howard's black checker. And very excitedly, Howard jumped the man's checker and picked up his checker, and then he noticed the guy jumped two of his. Like, hmm. And the man moved again in front of Howard, and he jumped him again. And before long, the man moved again in front of Howard's checker, and he jumped him, and the man jumped him twice and said, King me. Well, obviously, the game didn't last very long. And the man had beaten him, and he said to Howard afterwards, he said, there's something you need to understand about checkers. And that is, it's okay to lose a few checkers along the way as long as you're heading for king territory. I would suggest that James has that same principle for you and me. It's okay to lose a few checkers along the way as long as you're heading for king territory. God has promised us the crown of life. Don't get focused on the checkers you may be losing today. Focus on what God is doing for you through that trial and what God has promised you 
in the age to come. We're going to sing in closing as we do and as we stand to sing. I would ask you today, because we're all in trials. We, I said earlier, we're either right in front of one, we're right in the middle of the one, or we just passed one. Because everybody deals with them. So I want you to think about what your trial is today. What is it God has placed you in? What is the fire in your life right now? And I would ask you to say, God, by your spirit, I want to show the ingredients of true faith in the midst of this trial. I want to be a person who truly rejoices. I want to be a person who truly understands what you're doing. I want to be a person who climbs up in your lap and rests on you even when I don't have all the answers. I want to be a person who has that believing heart that I know that you're in control and you love me and you have what's best for me. And then finally, I want to be that person who has a humble spirit who would say, God, I came like Job naked. I'm going to leave naked. Whatever you've given me, you've given me. If you take it away, it's checkers in contrast to kingship. Let's stand and be real before the Lord today as we close our service.